welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 146. In this episode, we're talking about Eusebius the Evangelist, Dr. Jeremiah Coogan. Dr. Jeremiah Coogan is Assistant Professor of New Testament at the Jesuit School of Theology of Santa Clara University and the author of the new book that we're discussing on this episode, Eusebius the Evangelist, Rewriting the Fourfold Gospel in Late Antiquity, published by Oxford University Press. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. John Anthony Dunn, Dr. Chris Porter, Dr. Logan Williams, myself, Jennifer Guo, and introducing for the very first time, Dr. Madison Pierce. Dr. Pierce, it is so good to have you now as a co-host of the Two Cities. Thanks, Jen. It's really exciting to be here. I've said for a long time that Two Cities is my favorite podcast, so I'm super excited to be a part of it. Today, we had a wonderful conversation with Dr. Jeremiah Coogan uh, to talk about his new book. And it was a particular delight for me to be on this episode with him because he's a recent graduate of the program in which I am currently pursuing doctoral studies. And um, this was just such a wonderful conversation today. What were some of your takeaways from our conversation with Dr. Coogan? I really loved hearing Jeremiah talk about the different ways that the canon tables were used and reflecting on um, just what a resource it was for early Christians. That was really encouraging. And I certainly hope that we use it as a resource too. What I love about this episode is all of our Bibles have cross-referencing in them. And this is really where it all begins, that this is what we're talking about. And it's really cool. It's different uh, from what we might you know, be used to with our cross-referencing system, but it's really cool to hear about how this kind of originated. And, and Jeremiah is an, is an expert on this, and it's just a, a fantastic to hear from him about all, the, all that went into it and all the significance that it has. I really liked uh, Jeremiah's thinking through uh, how... Uh, the canon tables used, but also those ex exceptions where the canon tables actually break down and then you get some weird oddities in the edges, such as uh, what we see in uh, John 12. Yeah, I really like just generally um, that we talked about how people for thousand for, you know, about a thousand years were reading the Gospels in a nonlinear fashion organized by this one person <laughs> and his canon tables. So think about a mode of textual organization that was so influential and so impactful for people's uh, interaction with this set of texts uh, is just fascinating. Uh, and uh, yeah, you have a lot to look forward to in this episode. Yes, it really is incredible that for over a thousand years, the way that everyone read the Gospels was through these innovations produced by uh, Eusebius. But I was also really, really struck during this uh, interview by how so many of the things that we take for granted now that they originated with Eusebius, that he was so far ahead of his time, not just with the linking and cross-referencing, but even with some of the work that is kind of related to what we would now call like redaction criticism, the more synoptic problem, the way that he was seeing and thinking about how similarities and differences um, were related. It's just incredible that he really anticipated so long ago, a lot of today's scholarly discussions. All right, if you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. 
And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Jeremiah Coogan. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Coogan. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, we're really excited to talk to you today about your new book, Eusebius the Evangelist, Rewriting the Fourfold Gospel in Late Antiquity, which is the revised version of your PhD dissertation at the University of Notre Dame. To start things off, could you give us a little introduction to what the Eusebian apparatus is and how you became interested in this late ancient editorial intervention? The Eusebian apparatus is the first system of cross-references that was ever made by anyone for anything. It was designed by Eusebius of Caesarea in the fourth century, or maybe the very end of the third century CE. Eusebius was a biblical scholar and eventually bishop in Caesarea Maritima in what is today Israel. And his intervention was to create a set of tools that enabled reading the four gospels of the Christian New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, together as a single whole. So what does it mean to read these four Gospels as parallel narratives, not just as sort of siloed separate things or as duplicates, but as an interwoven whole? In order to do this, Eusebius created a system of cross-references, something that seems very mundane to us now, but was new then. And Eusebius's project involved using the technology of the table, you know, columns and rows, in order to facilitate organizing this information about what material in which Gospels parallels what material in other Gospels. I have more thoughts, too, on some of the other things that are cool about this project. So part of what Eusebius does is he connects not just things that seem obvious as parallels, not just the things that, say, in today's Allend synopsis might be put in parallel columns, but also other kinds of material that Eusebius discerns as being similar in various ways, whether that's sort of theological echoes, whether that's narrative structures that are similar, even though the material is quite different, even if that's not parallel narratives, but particular sayings that are particularly similar. And so Eusebius is trying to capture a variety of different kinds of similarity between these four gospel texts and to facilitate reading them as a single interwoven whole. There's been a lot of uh, recent work on the Eusebian canons by scholars like Francis Watson and Matthew Crawford. Could you tell us a little bit about how your work sits relative to theirs? Sure, yeah. So Francis Watson and Matthew Crawford and also another scholar, Thomas O'Laughlin, these scholars have each done some really interesting work on how Eusebius's project worked as a reading of the Gospels and where to put it in the bigger landscape of scholarship on the Gospels in late antiquity, the period that we might say starts roughly in the third century and continues until the seventh century or so. So in the period of late antiquity, how were people thinking through what it meant to read the Gospels? My project, like the work of Francis Watson, like the work of Matthew Crawford, is engaged in that conversation. There are a couple of things that I tried to do in my project that I think are new, or at least haven't been done to the extent that I think they needed to be done. One of those is paying attention to the very different kinds of use that this system of cross-references made possible for readers. So one sort of line of thinking would be to follow up how Eusebius's particular combinations of gospel passages work for exegesis. And that's important. 
So exegesis in the sense of particular interpretations. How did commentators use Eusebius? How did homilists use Eusebius's insights about the gospels in order to offer new interpretations? And that's, that's important. And there's more and more work to be done there as well. But that's not the only way that Eusebius shaped the possibilities of reading this fourfold gospel. And so a lot of my project was focusing on the ways that Eusebius transformed what it meant to use a gospel book, how Eusebius made it possible to use a gospel book in ways that previously hadn't been possible. One of these things, again, something that seems mundane and obvious, but actually that is quite unusual and novel, is the fact of standardized sectioning itself. So part of how Eusebius's project works is that he divided each of the gospels into a number of sequential numbered sections, each section varying in length from part of what is today a verse to extended sections up to a couple of chapters in one case of, of our modern system. These, these sections provided a flexible and yet stable way of referring to particular passages. Flexible, transferable in the sense that different people could use them. You weren't reliant on having just one particular manuscript the way you would if you were referring to say page numbers in a manuscript. So this is a stable system that can be used in different ways. And it's used, for example, in discussions of particular theological loci, particular problems. It gives you an efficient way to refer to passages the way that today we use chapter and verse numbers to do the same work. It also made it possible to use Eusebius's system as a system for liturgy. And so Eusebius's dividing up of the gospels becomes the roadmap for liturgical patterns that break up the gospels into liturgical units. Also, Eusebius's decisions about what to juxtapose and what to keep separate become part of text critical arguments and conversations in late antiquity and into the Middle Ages. And so my project tries to draw together these different ways of using the gospels, not just the specific liturgical or homiletical or commentarial decisions, but also the other ways in which UCB's project enables readers to use the Gospels in new ways. Thanks, Jeremiah. This is so interesting. And um, I'm certainly among those who's been influenced by Francis um, yes. and Matt. And yep, I talk about the canon tables way too much in my classes um, and show them quite frequently for, for various reasons. And speaking of showing them, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how some of what you're doing in terms of how the canon tables were used for exegesis, for preaching, for those kinds of things intersects with what we know about the production of gospel books and the use of the canon tables um, and how that kind of affected the production of these texts, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, it's really fun to teach with the Eusebian apparatus both because it's so often decorated beautifully, as you know very well, it's decorated and yeah. students like to see that, but also because it actually invites engagement with the ways that past readers use the gospels, how they found their way around, and also just what gospel books actually looked like. So yeah, I, I love teaching with the Eusebian apparatus and I'm glad that you're doing that as well. Now to, to your question about sort of how this works in sort of historical terms. Yeah, I, I, think, that, I think that one of the, really um, useful things to think about here is, is the fact that the Eusebian apparatus gives a map for the entirety of the gospel corpus. 
And so it's not just that it enables you to find your way around between any particular point A and particular point B, identifying similarities and indeed differences between gospel narratives and between particular passages, but also that it visually, iconically presents the idea of these four gospels as a single whole. And so both in terms of the decorated canons, the arches and columns that you'll find at the beginning of many gospel manuscripts, but also in just the fact that every little bit of each of the four gospels is represented on those few pages. And so it provides a sort of metonymic representation of the entirety of the gospels on just a few pages in order to articulate these are one thing. These are one thing that fit together as a whole. Okay. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting. I think it's the Garima Gospels where the canon tables are like unusable, but it represents the kind of the necessity at that particular point of the canon tables that this is this is something we need in the um, in gospel books or you know something like that. I don't know if you you may disagree about my characterization there, and I welcome some pushback. Well, no, you're right. There are there are lots of there are lots of manuscripts, or at least a good number of manuscripts, where the canons don't work. There are other manuscripts, in fact, a very large number of manuscripts where a few of the links are broken, as it were. It's sort of like when you're using the internet and you hit a bad hyperlink. Now, just because the internet has a few bad hyperlinks doesn't mean that the internet doesn't work. It just means you have to go back and try again some other way. And so there are, I, I think sometimes scholars tend to think, well, the Eusebian apparatus is really complicated and annoying to copy, which is true. And it's frequently filled with errors. Well, that's sort of true. It frequently has some errors in it, but that doesn't mean that people didn't find it useful. It doesn't mean that it was just an ornament, just a decoration, just a visual representation of gospel unity. It still continued to be used. And we see that both in the fact that we have some superbly copied examples, even quite late in the manuscript tradition, showing that it was possible to get it entirely right. But also the fact that there are superbly copied examples shows us that people cared about copying it correctly and keeping it right. That doesn't happen without checking and sometimes correcting the errors. We also have physical manuscripts with corrections visible on the page, sometimes not just by the original scribe, but by a later reader, which shows that people continued to use the system and that it was useful enough that they thought it was worth correcting and keeping it functional. That's awesome. Thanks, Jeremiah. And that's a superb analogy. Do we ever have examples of people reading with a quote-unquote miscopied um, Eusebian apparatus and generating a kind of reading off of a mistake? Kind of like somebody kind of exegeting a text with a text critical error or something? I don't think so. If there is one, I haven't found it, although I would love to find one if there is. I think more often what happens is people try using the apparatus, notice something has gone awry, and fix it. And this happens right. sometimes even when they're reading the apparatus as Eusebius made it, and they don't like what he did. So in particular, we have some examples from Hiberno-Latin monks of the 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries who read Eusebius's more creative ex exegetical decisions and think, wait, that doesn't make sense. Eusebius couldn't have meant that. Let me fix it. Or sometimes they, they think that Eusebius did mean that, and they just think he's wrong. But I don't think we have excellent examples of someone reading the wrong apparatus and ending up with 
an exegetical result. We certainly have res the results of people reading the apparatus and thinking it's wrong. So um, your title is quite provocative, Eusebius the Evangelist. Yes. Uh, of course, you know, traditionally the evangelists are fourfold. Um, why do you think, uh, and I'm sure you do this in your book, uh, do you think that it is uh, justified and, and helpful to speak of Eusebius qua textual organizer as also thereby an evangelist? Thanks, Logan. Yeah, so the title is certainly intended as provocative, but this is part of one of the central interventions of the book, which is that it's important not just to read Eusebius's project as scholarship, but also as a way of creating a new kind of text to be read. Eusebius reconfigures the possibilities of using the gospel text on the page to make your way around in it. He creates particular exegetical connections, particular juxtapositions that are novel and theologically quite rich, but he also changes the possibilities of what it means to use a gospel book. That's the sense in which I think it's worth talking about Eusebius as an evangelist. He is creating a kind of gospel book that didn't previously exist with new possibilities of reading. Some of that is the creative theological work he's doing in juxtaposing particular gospel texts together. Some of which is actually continuing trajectories we already see in earlier gospel writing and gospel rewriting. He combines and draws together passages which probably are actually redactional synoptic relationships. And he weaves together multiple prior gospel texts in ways not dissimilar to say how Luke will sometimes draw together material from both Matthew and Mark. And so in that sense, Eusebius is continuing a trajectory of rereading extant gospel material together in new and creative ways. Of course, he does this in a way that explicitly declines the approaches of, say, figures like Tatian or of Ammonius and Alexandria, who we really know about just because Eusebius disagrees with him. And so Tatian had taken material from four, if not more, gospel sources and woven them together in one linear whole. Ammonius also does something similar. He uses columns to arrange one single running text, Matthew, and then other material alongside Matthew. Eusebius finds both of these approaches problematic because they dissolve the narrative integrity, the textual unity of each of the four individual gospel texts. So in that sense, Eusebius is unlike these previous projects of gospel writing. He doesn't dissolve the prior text in order to make his new one. He leaves four texts intact and then stitches them together by this incredibly rich web of hyperlinks or cross-references. But in the ways that Eusebius creates innovative new ways of reading gospel material together that creates a new text to be read on the page. In that sense, I think it is fruitful and certainly provocative, but also generative to read Eusebius's project as one of gospel writing. The other reason I think this is worthwhile is because Eusebius's gospel is the gospel that most readers encounter on the page for more than a thousand years thereafter. Eusebius's reconfigured gospels are the ways that are the way that people read the gospels going forward. So in that sense too, Eusebius's gospels are the gospels that are read and used in liturgy and scholarship going forward for quite a very long time. Thanks so much, Jeremiah. Um, 
One of the things that you mentioned earlier in, in the usages of the UCBN apparatus uh, was that it, it gave uh, interlocutors an opportunity to be able to, uh, to accurately or semi-accurately anyway, refer to uh, the same passage that, that they're debating uh, and to have more robust uh, engagements on that, uh, on that topic. Um, I'm interested in where this actually di diverges from the Eusebian uh, context uh, and the Eusebian fourfold tradition. Uh, so thinking about uh, the Valentinians and the Gospel of Truth, uh, where they there, there are those claims that uh, that are made that parts of the Gospel of Truth are related to the fourth gospel, and therefore um, sort of are linked by uh, shared tradition. Uh, do we have any evidence of of where that breaks down? The Eusebian canon is not able to be used for that sort of comparison, and so therefore uh, there there's. Um, perhaps some conflict or, or some, some external engagement with something else apart from that? Yeah, no, this is important. Eusebius' project is just for the fourfold gospel. And it's worth noting that it's also not for other things that Eusebius regards as scripture. So for example, you could think about the relationship between the synoptic last supper, say, and the words of institution that Paul provides in 1 Corinthians. You could think about cross-referencing between gospel passages, and then intertexts from the Septuagint, the Greek Bible. Eusebius doesn't do either of those things. Eusebius is also quite happy to use, in certain contexts, other things that we generally don't think of as being part of Eusebius's canonical or scriptural text. Eusebius sometimes uses material from the gospel according to the Hebrews and does so positively, but that's also not part of his fourfold gospel. So in all of those ways, yeah, Eusebius's project is intentionally limited. But I think that res results from the specific problem he's trying to sort through. There are four very similar, yet also very dissimilar texts that all together are part of the scriptures that he takes as the received scripture of the church. And so in that context, he's solving a particular problem of reading and not solving the sort of global problem of how can I cross-reference everything? but focusing on making sense of one corpus that he takes as already a corpus, but also thinks needs to be mapped or structured in a way that makes it useful as the corpus he takes it to be. And so even though Eusebius might admit of material from the gospel according to the Hebrews, even though he seems to positively use the Protovangelium of James, those aren't part of the problem he's trying to solve. But you're right, of course, this makes, it, this makes it a limited tool. It's a tool for one kind of reading, one kind of reading that Eusebius finds particularly important, but it doesn't do everything. It's not, a, it's not the complete cross-references like I ostensibly have in accordance that try to cross-reference everything. It's just for one corpus. And I think that actually goes to the sort of broader theory of gospel as gospel that Eusebius has. He's trying to map the structural internal unity of the fourfold gospel as a coherent corpus. And so part of what that means is that the representation of gospel totality that we find on the first few pages of a gospel book with the Eusebian canons are a representation that this is a coherent structured whole. It's not just that all the material is reflected here. It's not just a table of contents. It's also a table of contents as a claim of structured unity.
And in that sense, to cross-reference other things in probably would have worked against Eusebius's purposes. Here, I think it's actually interesting to think about the difference between the Eusebian apparatus and this slightly later project known as the Euthalian apparatus, which I know Jen has also done some work on. The Euthalian apparatus seems to take its inspiration from the Eusebian apparatus. Eusebius maps and structures the fourfold gospel. The Euthalian apparatus provides a somewhat similar set of tools for reading the Pauline corpus and then even later for reading the Acts and Catholic epistles as well. The Euthalian apparatus is sort of this ever-evolving, ever-growing project. But the Euthalian apparatus doesn't just map intersections within the Pauline corpus, say, but also will map those other intertexts beyond the corpus it's trying to map. And that's something that is different from Eusebius's project, which is much more centered on this fourfold gospel whole. Within that context of the fourfold gospel whole, um, Werner Kelber, I think, suggested that the Eusebian canon ends up becoming that closure of uh, uh, closure of the biblical text. I think is what he says that the, that this is the end of the line for any variance. In contrast, I think Matt Crawford says it's an expansion of the biblical text and, and allows uh, some more engagement with it. Uh, where, where do you see it uh, as landing in that space? Well, so I think I, there are, I have two answers to that question. One, Kelbury is at one level right that this is an attempt to sort of demarcate what is the gospel whole. Kelbury's right, but there's also a problem with that insofar as actually the gospel whole continues to change in certain ways. And the Eusebian apparatus is changed to reflect that. The best example of this is the longer ending of Mark. Eusebius didn't include the longer ending of Mark, Mark 16, 9 through 20, as part of his apparatus. Later readers thought that you probably should have the longer ending of Mark as part of this system for mapping the fourfold gospel whole. And so they adapt Eusebius' system to include what it previously had not included. So as the standard and preferred form of gospel text changes in the case of the longer ending. So also the Eusebian apparatus is adapted by its users to more adequately reflect the shape of this whole that they're trying to map. At that level, I think that Kelber is right that this is an attempt to reflect the whole, but clearly it's not actually an effective mode of closing off a canon so much as a tool that's designed to help read a particular corpus in a certain sort of way. There's also another sense, which I think Matt's exactly right. In his book, Matt uses Bakhtin to think about the ways in which the Eusebian apparatus, by juxtaposing things, creates new possibilities of meaning that weren't already obviously there. And I think that's right. I'm not sure that Kelber would disagree with that actually. Um, but certainly that's not what Kelber describes in the text you're referring to. Um, but it's certainly true that Eusebius uses his gospel canons to invite new readings of the gospels that are not previously obviously there. And certainly it's also true that people continue to use Eusebius' system as a way of finding new connections in the gospels that might not already have been apparent. So in that sense, it does open up certain possibilities, but it also attempts to map out what counts as the fourfold gospel. Could you give us an example of uh, what may be considered a, 
um, cross-reference in the apparatus that's really not intuitive or obvious. This, I think, also goes to Chris's question. So the other thing that I argue in my book that the Eusebian apparatus does is it creates the possibilities of doing what in today's parlance we call distant reading. That is, it creates the possibility of attending not just to particular connections between gospel texts, but also to thinking sort of in the big picture, zoomed out about patterns of relationship between gospel texts. And so, for example, Eusebius creates the possibility of saying there's a lot more unique material in John than there is in Mark. And this is an insight that you could reach just by reading the texts linearly, but it's also one that you were able to see in new ways by zooming out with the analytical tool of the Eusebian apparatus. So it makes it possible to categorize different kinds of relationship. Here's material shared by all four gospels. Here's material distinctive to any individual gospel. Here's material that's just in this particular pattern, say material shared by Matthew and Luke. In other words, the material we often think of as being Q. Eusebius has a category for this. He doesn't always reach the results that we would think of as being Q, but for those of us who believe that Q exists at all. But he certainly is thinking about the patterns of relationship that have also attracted the attention of modern scholars. So that's the other sense in which I think this sort of technological intervention, structuring the gospels using the canons, makes it possible to read in new ways. And this comes back to that question of whether this is closing or opening. In some sense, it is still mapping a thing that is thought to be there and to be sort of solidly there. Again, the longer ending suggests that the, the there can expand. But also, it opens up new ways of thinking about the patterns and relationships of the material that is in the text. There are lots of examples I could adduce of places that you see this connects material in novel and theologically generative ways. I have a whole chapter in the book that's about the ways that Eusebius does this with a whole bunch of examples. One of my favorite examples, one that certainly I'm not the first to have noticed, this has been noticed at least as far back as John William Bergen in the 1870s, is the example of how the bread of life from John 6 gets connected to the this is my body from the synoptic Last Supper narratives. It's not a hard jump to make, and yet it's also not intuitively the same material. It suggests that Eusebius is making theological connections based on a particular notion of what we might call a Eucharistic theology, a particular understanding of what it means to speak of Jesus's body at the Last Supper, and how then one might connect it to Jesus's words and deeds elsewhere in the big picture of these gospel narratives. So that's one example. Another example might be the ways that Eusebius just defies history. Eusebius's project is not interested in doing a historical Jesus project. Again and again and again, he makes connections that are not claims about historical parallels, or at least that don't try to answer questions about what happened when, and instead privileges connections based on narratives, themes, particular wording. For example, we could think about the fishing expeditions of Luke 5 and John 21. One of these happens early in Jesus's ministry, the other happens after the resurrection. These are in no way obviously the same thing, but in both cases there is a miraculous catch of a lot of fish. 
Eusebius invites us to read these passages together. And one of the things that I suggest is this might reflect Eusebius's thinking about what we might call a theology of discipleship, that the call to the disciples at the beginning of Jesus's ministry and the call to the disciples at the end of John's gospel are connected. The pattern of Jesus's action and the pattern of response to which these disciples are called is parallel. Now, this isn't because Eusebius has forgotten that these are at very different narrative implotments in their respective Gospels, but rather it's because Eusebius is interested in what we might gain by reading them together, even though they are historically quite divergent. I think that is really helpful that there are other um, principles that might be operative in the organization of the material beyond um, history and chronology and you know basically being the same event. Those theological connections, I think, are super helpful. But one of the things I've been wondering recently is to what degree those um, pairings that we might find weird or wrong, as some, some scholars suggest, might be due to textual variance. And so I'm curious if you might be able to speak to that. Of course, what has got me interested in this is thinking about the sour wine and the mixed wine offerings to Jesus on the cross, which is notoriously difficult to keep straight, uh, certainly uh, for any reader in the contemporary period, but there's a whole history of kind of uh, messiness uh, that I've been interested in. And I'm just curious, not with that specific example, but are there other instances where uh, maybe the, the the canons, the apparatus is actually a clue to the, you know, forelogging that were uh, before uh, Eusebius? Yeah, there are certainly a number of cases where Eusebius gives us evidence for divergent text forms. Sometimes that's about conflation between gospel narratives. Sometimes it isn't. Uh, a good example here would be the bloody sweat from Luke 22. Eusebius devotes a section to it. Ergo, it was in his his forelogging. We we know that Eusebius has this passage because it he gives it its own distinctive section. He numbers accordingly. It's unique canon 10 that is Luke only material for him, but it's certainly in his manuscript. Um, there are other examples of this. One of the particularly interesting questions is the order of the Beatitudes. Again, Eusebius's numbering gives us a clue to the order that the Beatitudes in Matthew appeared for him. Or yet again, Eusebius's decision not to devote a section to, or multiple sections, to material in the longer ending is one of the ways we know that it's not there in the text that he maps. Even though other texts from Eusebius tells he was aware of the existence of the text, he didn't think it was part of what he needed to include as mark for these purposes of reading a fourfold gospel. On the other hand, part of what makes Eusebius's project interesting is when it doesn't tell us. And so there's a lot of textual variation that Eusebius's project just won't tell us about. Really small verbal differences, Eusebius's project isn't going to help us know about. We, we can't use him for those text critical ends. And in the case of, say, even a very substantial passage, like the story of the woman caught in adultery from John 7, 53 to 8, 11, be sandwiched in part of a longer section that Eusebius treats as material that is just found in John, whether that long passage of material just found in John included that passage of material just found in John or not is something that we can't discern based on Eusebius's apparatus. So quite often Eusebius's project is useful for the project of textual criticism. It reflects the structure of the text on the page in front of him. 
but also quite often it doesn't answer the questions text critics might want to answer because Eusebius wasn't interested in giving us that information. So sometimes um, Eusebius in the canon makes these connections which seem uh, far-fetched, uh, you know, these extended connections where you're wondering where it's going. And then at other times, uh, he makes this connect. He, we, he doesn't seem to make these connect, any connections at all. So I'm thinking of the anointing uh, of Jesus uh, with ointment. So I've just looked it up, and the uh, in the Johannine passage, he li links that both to Matthew 26 and Mark 14, which is a logical anointing passage, but leaves Luke out of it. So Luke 7, uh, 36 onwards. Uh, interested in your thoughts on on why. Um, these lacuna might be there. That why does uh, Eusebius skip over some of these these links, which seem to us to be so blindingly obvious? Um, but uh, for him, maybe there's something else going on in the passage. So this is a really interesting example because it's one of the places where Eusebius breaks his own rules. The fundamental rule of Eusebius's project is that you can only juxtapose into one canon. You can only align it in one kind of pattern. So you could have something assigned to all four gospels, canon one. You could have something assigned to just some other subset of gospels. And this is a place where Eusebius doesn't do that. He assigns the anointing in John, John section 98, which is John 12, two to eight, to two different canons. It's assigned to both canon one and canon four. This is, this is the way that Eusebius tries to get around the issues raised by your question. So Luke's version of the anointing in Luke 7 is much earlier in Luke's gospel narrative than the versions in Matthew, Mark, or John. And so what Eusebius does here is he juxtaposes all of them in certain ways, but not entirely. So Eusebius assigns John section 98 to both canon one and canon four. In canon four, it's juxtaposed with Matthew and Mark, but not Luke. In canon one, it's juxtaposed with the entire fourfold juxtaposition. So there are two options here. Either Eusebius couldn't make up his mind and sort of left the project slightly unedited. This has been suggested. It's not entirely impossible. I think the better explanation here is that Eusebius finds both patterns of juxtaposition useful in different ways. In some senses, all four anointings do deserve to be in parallel as the same canon one. In another sense, Luke should be left out of the equation for certain sorts of analysis. And so Matthew, Mark, and John know Luke. But you're right, this is, this is one of those puzzling places where how Eusebius is trying to make sense of gospel relationships is not entirely clear. And I think, I think this is one of those cases where we can better understand how underdetermined Eusebius's project is. Eusebius juxtaposes materials for you and then says, go have fun. He, he sort of collects the possible juxtapositions and then leaves you to do the actual work of making historical or theological meaning out of it. How should we parse out the different timelines. And actually here we should note that Matthew and Mark and John also have slightly different timelines in terms of their anointings. How, how do we parse out the timelines? How much of this material is narratively and thematically similar? How much of it is historically divergent? 
Eusebius gives you all the data and then leaves you to do the work. And that's not just an example here. I mean, another good example of that would be the temple incident, where Eusebius does juxtapose the synoptic and Johannine versions, but he doesn't solve the historical problem. Does the, is this two events? Is it one event? Should it be at the beginning? Should it be at the end? He doesn't try, he doesn't give you anything to answer those questions. He just gathers the data and then leaves you to do some work. Yeah, I, I actually was going to ask about the anointing story because it's one of the ones when I teach Johannine literature that I kind of put forward, you know, as a complicated incident because we have a different individual, uh, as far as we know, um, that's put forward and, you know, various aspects that create tension. And there are others like, um, you know, the kind of healing on the Sabbath story. That's something that you have to kind of wrestle with. Um, all this to say, I'm glad that that you um, integrated that, but I'm also interested, you know, what are some of the ways that you would see these conversations about gospel relations relating to what we would call the kind of modern synoptic problem? And to really tee you up, um, I'll say that I get asked a lot in class, um, Ugh, Dr. Pierce, why do we have to talk about this? Isn't this just some like modern fascination as a result of the enlightenment? So Jeremiah, put, put that to rest. <laughs> and then how does this relate? Yeah. So I'll say two things. One, it's not clear that Eusebius is interested in source criticism. It's not at all clear that he's interested in the questions of which gospel was written first and did one gospel use textual material from another. Those are questions that are really interesting and that do seem primarily to be part of the modern synoptic problem, although not necessarily entirely. I think Augustine already suggests an interest in order of gospel writing and of use of previous written gospel texts. When he talks about Mark as Matthew's breviator, it seems to be the case, and I know there is some disagreement about this, that he's actually thinking about Mark as being an abbreviated form of Matthew. More broadly, a number of early Christian readers think about the order of gospel writing as being relevant because they assume that each subsequent evangelist knows the work of, a pre of their predecessors. We see this in a number of different texts, but I think Epiphanius might be the most delightful example. And so there is an assumption that the order of gospel writing matters because each text is written in knowledge of and reliance on or response to pre previous texts. So there is in that sense, perhaps a sense of source criticism, but not in the sense that we tend to do today. But more importantly, Eusebius is interested in the same kinds of pattern recognition that we might today think about in terms of redaction criticism, not just who used what, but how is this narrative sort of reworking or representing that narrative? And that's where I think we find more fruitful co connections between the Eusebian attempt at reading gospel narratives together and what happens in the modern New Testament classroom when we use a synopsis, where we're not just interested in which synoptic hypothesis is the best solution. In fact, that's not something I spend a lot of energy on in 
class. I spend much more time when I teach New Testament thinking about, so what does it mean to tell these two stories in different ways and why might you want to do that? Which is precisely what Eusebius is interested in. He's not using quite the same source critical questions that modern scholars tend to be using when they're using a synopsis. But he's asking the same questions about similarity and difference that motivate modern synoptic scholarship. And indeed also the flourishing area of scholarship on how John relates to the synoptics. Eusebius is far ahead of us on this in fact. And sometimes Eusebius's connections anticipate precisely the kinds of juxtapositions that modern scholars thinking about John's reading of Mark say, what modern scholars find as find to be proposed to be John's readings of Mark, sometimes Eusebius is far ahead of us. So we've talked for you know nearly an hour about the uh, Eusebian apparatus. Um, how can people find uh, one of these? Uh, how can they use them? Is there one online uh, in certain editions of the New Testament? Um, what are your favorite ways of accessing it and using it? Yeah. So one of the challenges with the Eusebian apparatus is there aren't great resources for using it in English. I use the Eusebian apparatus in my Nestle Allen 28 edition, where it hides out on the gutter inside margin of the Gospels, and where the canons are inconveniently hidden in the midst of a whole bunch of other front matter in the Gospel edition. This is the easiest place to access the Eusebian apparatus as a full system. That is, the section numbers into which the Gospels are divided and the canons. There are also online sets of canons, but not easily combined with the sectioning of the Gospels themselves. So the first thing I'd say is use your Nestle Allen New Testament. This isn't in the UBS edition. It's just in the Nestle where it's been since at least the seventh edition. Um, I've, I've not yet succeeded in finding a copy of the sixth, fifth, or fourth editions to check if it's there. So I know it's been there since the seventh, but if anyone has a fourth, fifth, or sixth edition of the Nestle, you have a fifth, I want to see it. Um, I, I don't I, have a fifth, but I've seen one and, it's, oh, and there, there's certainly it, apparatus in the spine. So. Okay, in the fifth edition, that's excellent. Yeah, the easiest places in the Nestle Allen's Greek New Testament. Obviously, that's easiest when you actually know some Greek. Um, and so this is, this is a problem. The Net Bible, in a few of its printings, included it, um, although not, I think, all of them. And that's certainly a place to go as well. Um, if you find other places where people are using it, that's really exciting, and I would love to know about that. Um, but this is, this is one of the challenges, and I think that modern English study Bibles could include it, and that would be great, but I haven't seen one other than a few printings of the Net Bible that do. You should just sign a contract with Zondervan and get some like NIV version of this working. <laughs> that might that might pay more than all the other scholarly writing I do ever. So so there is um I was trying to find it earlier, uh, but Peter Head has on his website uh a link to an online Bible tool from about a decade ago called the sword project which yes. just is a terrible name yeah that's that's the same um, thing is that that's the same thing as the net bible project yep yeah. uh they the problem is that it's broken now it doesn't yes, actually exactly work anymore in new browsers so 
that's what I was looking for before when I was, because yeah. I don't have a 28 with me uh, here at home. My net Bible doesn't have it. Your net Bible doesn't have it. Yeah. No, not that I can see, but yeah. So I actually had a wrap up question that is actually quite related to what Logan asked. Since the Eusebian apparatus was used for so long, uh, not just for scholarship, but like you mentioned, Jeremiah, by uh, homilists and liturgy and whatnot. What do you think, what would you say is the place of those of us who can access this apparatus um, to maybe read it, not just as an object of study, but as a way that we uh, grow in our own understanding of the gospel, if that makes sense. I mean, certainly for me, having spent a number of years now reading the gospels over Eusebius's shoulder, it's hard for me not to see Eusebian connections in all sorts of contexts, not just in scholarly writing, but also in ecclesial contexts, and certainly in the New Testament classroom. And so I think that this is part of a broader turn toward reading, reading scripture with the early church, sort of to read over the shoulders of Christian readers before us. And I think that, well, I would not really ever encourage anyone to talk about the Eusebian apparatus in a sermon. I think that the connections that Eusebius makes can be homiletically and ecclesially fruitful, even if you don't need to flag them as being, oh, these are insights from Eusebius in the fourth century. In fact, a number of the places where we see the Eusebian apparatus used across time, they're not flagged. The way you notice that Eusebius is being used is by noticing that again and again and again, people are using Eusebius's distinctive and creative connections. Quite often, Eusebius's readers, just like the readers today who use a system of cross-references, don't say, I'm using the cross-references in my Bible. Why would you do that? You just use the cross-references. That's normal. And so the same way, readers throughout time have often used Eusebius without telling us they're using Eusebius. And I think that especially the sort of rich theological connections that he makes are still quite useful in ecclesial contexts today. Thank you so much for your time and for being with us today, Jeremiah. Thank you so much. Thanks to all of you. 